You elected to brave the battles and pronounce that New Zealand could not be free when other human beings were being subjected to a legalized and cruel system of racial oppression. Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them, both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with long-serving press gallery journalist Barry Soper. Barry is woven into the fabric of Aotearoa New Zealand political journalism, having moved into working in the press gallery in 1980 after just over a decade covering other things. Barry has now covered politics for News Talk ZB for many years. Barry's career has plumbed the highs and lows of political life in our country, covering 10 Prime Ministers from Rob Muldoon to Jacinda Ardern. That coverage has taken him into many fascinating places with legendary personalities. In this episode, I chatted with Barry about the times he met Nelson Mandela. It's a conversation that gives a glimpse into what has driven Barry and his work for many years. Enjoy. Barry, it is a pleasure to sit down. It's nice to do this in the News Talk ZB studio. <laughs> well, it's appropriate, really, isn't it? Frank? It is. And I usually do my ZB show on Sunday evenings from the little studio in Hamilton, so right. it's nice to record this in the mothership. Well, you're in the Mike Hosking studio at the moment, so yeah. it's well vacuumed. It is. Very clean, as you can see. Yeah, yeah we should pilfer the vacuum and see what he does. <laughs> You'll never get back into the studio again. Hey Barry, we've caught you in a time where you've had some time off looking after your new little bub. How's that been? Oh, fantastic. Um, You know, I mean, I've always loved kids and Iggy's my sixth child. And uh, unfortunately, with the other five, I never had time uh, because you're always, you know, building a career. You've, uh, you know, you don't have the spare time. But now... Uh, fairly long in the tooth to be having another child. It's um, it's been great, and I've loved being at home with him. And uh, he's such a character, and just watching every every uh, development uh, as in his babyhood. He's now at five months, I suppose, into almost infancy. But it's just amazing. Mm. You know, bit, much better than I ever thought. But I'll tell you what, it does. It makes you think about how hard motherhood is mm. because it's not an easy job. You know, you're full on from the time you get up in the morning until he goes to bed at night. <laughs> so, but it's great. It's rewarding. It must be good to have, to be in a place where you've hustled so hard for so many years, and your career is expensive. To get to a place now where you feel like you've got the flexibility to be able yeah. to do it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, I've been in this job now more than 50 years, Mm. (laughs) which I think, oh, my God, it's so long. (laughs) So I started in 1969 uh, in June, and uh, it's a hell of a long time ago. And, you know, when I talk uh, to the young journalists these days about Muldoon, they sort of look at me quizzically. (laughs) They've heard the name, but uh, never had the experience. And fortunately, uh, you know, well, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, I've had the experience of most of them. Mm. You did 10 years in print before you, uh, roughly 10 years, just over 10 years in print yeah. before you jumped over to the press gallery. Why, yeah. the, why the shift into the press gallery? Because it's a, it's a bit of a bear pit. Oh, it is. Um, and that was, uh, what, 42 years, almost 43 yeah. years ago. 
Um, I basically was shoulder tapped. I was working for television, uh, for TVNZ, and I was doing their industrial round, which was fantastic in those days because um, Jim Knox was the president of the Federation of Labour, will not be intimidated, he always used to say. <laughs> and, um, and I was shoulder tapped to go into radio. And uh, I was once told by Radio New Zealand that with a voice like yours, you'll never work in radio. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, we'll see about that. That was a long time ago. And um, so, uh, yeah, I got into uh, the press gallery. I came in as political editor, which was fantastic because I was the boss at the beginning, but I've never really been the boss ever since. So, you know, there you go. That's the way journalism is. <laughs> and, of course, that meant the 1984 election, uh, which in my mind, I was, a, I was a kid at the time, but it's yeah. Probably the first politics that I remember mm. is that election, David Longy versus Robert Muldoon. Yeah, uh, and you were around these personalities oh, yeah. that are now almost folklore of, yes. of New Zealand uh, political lore. Well, we always call it the Schnapps election because um, I was up at Government House the night that um, Rob Muldoon turned up. Uh, not seven sheets to the wind, probably more so, and uh, went into, I remember, the anteroom um, uh, when you uh, went into Government House. And all I remember, my abiding memory was, and I was only one of three journalists that happened to be there at the time, um, was the butler ferrying a glass of scotch in, um, on numerous occasions. <laughs> and when uh, Muldoon emerged uh, later, and said that he was proroguing Parliament, which was something, a word that we'd never really heard of. And um, then uh, the snap election was uh, on. Uh, he had to be bundled off into his LTD limousine, uh, taken back to Parliament to sober up. And when you saw him on television, uh, and the most memorable clip of that night is that doesn't leave my opponents much time in the run-up to the election. In fact, um, Muldoon was sober then compared to what he was like mm. at Government House. Uh, he was well far gone. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine being in that sort of environment with big personalities like that takes takes a measure of confidence. Did you feel that sense of confidence early in the game? Well, with politics, yes, because uh, I'd been around, you know, as you said, for 10 years, and uh, much of my career before that was involved uh, in a peripheral sense in politics, industrial relations. I knew old Jim Bolger when he was Labour Minister under the Muldoon government, and I, I was surprised, I remember, when I was a young um, television New Zealand reporter to always be invited up to Jim Bolger's office for a drink. And I thought, why would he be listening to me? You know, what do I know? But mm. it's the power of the media. And um, so I was I was not intimidated by uh, um, certainly the political process and uh, least of all by Rob Muldoon, who was a tyrant, very difficult man, but I enjoyed him immensely to cover. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah, I'd imagine the, the story writing and the ferreting around oh, for stories would have been great. Yeah, yeah, no, great. It was fantastic. Talking about that, that power of the media, I mean, we all look at our, uh, our prime ministers and our politicians as having a measure of power, but you've arced across many prime ministers now. And when I think about the shift from Rob Muldoon to Jacinda Ardern, you've been there telling those stories all the way through. And I think it's worth acknowledging that. It's worth acknowledging <laughs> the influence of media. So you've helped shape the perception of each of those prime ministers. Yeah, well, um, Jacinda Ardern's my 10th prime minister. Mm. Um, yeah, no, they've all had their strengths and weaknesses. And, um, you know, being I've been an observer 
And when people get stuck into you about criticising them, I say to them, and then and in particular, their normally their chief press secretaries have a go at you, and you say, well, look, treat me like a theatre critic. I mean, I look at the way these people perform. Uh, and I think after my time in Parliament, I've uh, earned the right to have a say mm. on what I see their performances being. And uh, I've never resolved from that. So uh, uh, that's much to the annoyance, I've got to say, of people who generally work for prime ministers. But uh, that's the nature of the business. And, it, and it's required when you think about how much training they go through now in order to get their messages across. The mm. tenacity, tenacity is required in our press journalists in order to get around that and just keep probing to get the answers that are needed. Yep, and that, that's the job of the media. And I think, you know, when we lose sight of that, then uh, you lose sight of journalism because, you know, these people have to be held to account. They're dealing with uh, immense amount of money uh, and out of our pockets, out of the taxpayer's pocket. And uh, unless they're fully accountable, then... Um, they shouldn't be in the job. So, uh, you know, that's why people like me are there to make sure that they answer the questions that they should be answering. Mm. One of the roles of a press journalist, too, is to follow prime ministers around the world. Uh, you've landed yourself in some amazing places and some phenomenal situations. Any standout events? Well, you know, when you when you look back over a career, and I'm sure you do the same, Frank, that... Um, the, the one that stands out to me, and it's probably the most moving experience that I had, and uh, a person that I'd read about uh, widely was Nelson Mandela. And um, I was uh, fortunate enough not just to go to his inauguration, but to his funeral as well. Um, funeral's very sad, of course. But, um, you know, the story goes back further mm. than his inauguration because um, Mandela, to me, was a remarkable human being. Uh, how on earth somebody could spend 27 years behind bars and to come out and engage with his, what were his oppressors, uh, and the way that he did is the mark of a person that I think the likes of uh, we'd be lucky to see in our lifetimes again. Mm -hmm. But um, no, Mandela, the first time uh, I met him was um, at the uh, Harare Commonwealth Heads of Government uh, meeting and uh, it was the time that Robert Mugabe was the golden-headed boy of the Commonwealth. And uh, in those days, the journalists used to be invited to cocktail functions uh, with the leaders, which was wonderful. And um, we were all there socialising with the leaders, uh, talking to them. And um, uh, Jim Bolger was getting a bit bored and he was moving towards the exit door. So generally you follow your own prime minister in case he falls over or <laughs> makes a gaffe and uh, you can talk about it. So uh, I was following um, Bolger and um, suddenly the um, the door bursts open and this man in a uh, African jalaba, the uh, formal uh, dress of uh, Africa, uh, came running through the door and ran up to me and said, are you with the Prime Minister? Are you with the Prime Minister? Well, journalists are never actually with the Prime Minister. We don't like to say that we're there covering a Prime Minister, not with one. But before I could explain that, and there was no point in explaining anyway, he said, I would like to introduce uh, you to introduce uh, the person that I'm with. And he hadn't come through the door at that stage. And I said, well, well I'll do what I can. Yeah, our Prime Minister's there. And then, lo and behold, through the door walked Nelson Mandela. Mm. He hadn't been long out of jail and, uh, in fact, hadn't been sworn in as uh, the president of South Africa then. And so, so, and don't forget, Jim Bolger once called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Mm. So um, I walked Mandela over and said, oh, Prime Minister, uh, this is 
as if he needed any introduction. Uh, this is Nelson Mandela, and uh, uh, Bolger was effusive, of course. And my uh, lasting impression of the introduction was this very firm hand on my shoulder, almost throwing me out of the way. And it was Bob Hawke, the Australian <laughs> Prime Minister, who had cut a swathe through the cocktail function when he saw what was happening, pushed me out of the way and uh, wanted to muscle in on the fame of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Um, fortunately, Bolger had the uh, wherewithal to uh, invite Nelson Mandela to breakfast the next morning uh, in Harare, and he got in before Bob Hawke. So um, we all went along to the breakfast and um, interviewed Mandela, which was uh, fantastic mm. because we got to talk to him. And in those days, I always wore bow ties, <laughs> and I wore them for years. I've uh, certainly been trained out of those in uh, the last number of years. But um, so Mandela, we interviewed Mandela, and... Um, then uh, it was uh, you move forward to the um, the uh, inauguration, and uh, it was great to be there. And I'd covered African politics for a long time, and uh, at the inauguration, it was marvelous because um, we were with uh, a, an African speaking press secretary of uh, Jim Bolger called Therese Anders, and um, we, for some reason were ushered into an area that we shouldn't have been in and uh, it was the lunch um, after the inauguration and um, um, we were standing just uh, near Nelson Mandela's table and um, nobody questioned us and we saw Hillary Clinton there. She was representing uh, the Americans, the United States, because Bill couldn't make it, which was extraordinary. Uh, so she was there in Al Gore and uh, I thought, one an eye for an opportunity, we should interview Clinton. And um, so I went over to her press aide and said, look, we're, we're from New Zealand, we'd like to interview uh, Secretary Clinton. And um, well, she wasn't a secretary then, she was the wife of the president. And um, she said, well, no, Al Gore's the head of our delegation, we'd um, prefer you to talk to him. And I said, well... No, between you and I, Al Gore is not that well known in New Zealand, <laughs> and there's nothing like flattery of a politician yeah. to to get the uh, result that you want. And Clinton agreed to the interview, so we interviewed her, and um, uh, Jim Bolger could see what was going on, and he called me over and he uh, to his table and he said, "Bash, bash, have a look at this." Showed me this big uh, Niederberg. Uh, litre and a half of Niederberg red wine, Cabernet Sauvignon, 1984 it was. And he said, um, oh, I've got it as a souvenir bash to take back to New Zealand. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's good. How'd you get that, Jim? And he pointed to a waiter. So I went over to the waiter and I said, mate, you know, I'm with our pro Then I was with our Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah. said, We're, I'm with our Prime Minister. Uh, I'd like to take a souvenir of that wonderful wine home. <laughs> and I've still got it to this day. Oh, really? Unopened? Unopened. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've still got it. And it survived, amazingly, uh, one of the few bottles that survived the uh, earthquake, the Kaikoura mm. earthquake in Wellington. And I was living 15 floors up at the top of an apartment building, and it sat on a shelf and never wavered. It stood there. Um, oh, but wow. the inauguration was, it was great and uh, was in Pretoria. And uh, I remember talking to Desmond Tutu uh, there, tried to interview Winnie Mandela. I've got all these in photographs. <laughs> uh, I tried to interview Winnie, and Winnie said no, because uh, they, they had been estranged and they sort of were back together for the inauguration. And um, Desmond Tutu, I was standing with him when there was a flyover of South Af African jets, 
And I said to uh, Tutu, how does that make you feel? He looked up, which to me was quite moving. He looked up at the Jets and he said, I look at that and I say, they are ours. Mm. Finally, you know, they, they, are, they were theirs. And, um, you know, the struggle that uh, Mandela uh, had uh, to get where he did get to was extraordinary. And um, then, of course, he came to New Zealand for the Commonwealth uh, Heads of Government meeting in, in 1997. And um, so I thought, ever and I, for an opportunity, the press, press gallery's 125th, uh, 125th anniversary was being held that same year. So I thought, well, you know, why don't we try and get Mandela to speak at our dinner? Because the media was uh, very good during the anti-apartheid struggle in uh, 1981 mm. and the Springbok tour. So I didn't go through foreign affairs, which you'd normally go through. Uh, I went through the ANC in um, uh, Pretoria, and uh, we didn't hear anything, but I was for some reason supremely confident that he'd come and speak to us. And uh, in the meantime, I'd heard that Jim Bolger was working behind the scenes to prevent the media. He must have got wind of the fact we were trying to get him. Oh, wow. And worked behind the scenes to try and prevent it. And I was uh, on my way up to a golf tournament in uh, Wairaki, and I was actually at McDonald's in Paraparan <laughs> getting a Big Mac. And the phone goes, and it's a, a guy called John Hayes. And he later became an MP for the Wire Rapper, mm. but he was a foreign affairs man then. And he said, oh, Barry, uh, it's John Hayes here. He said, um, look, we've had this strange request from the, uh, the South African president's office that he would like to speak at your dinner. <laughs> and I went... Uh, absolutely excited but I said oh thanks John I said look I'm out of town at the moment I'll be away for the weekend um, I'll give you a call next week uh, I can't talk about it now called him back and of course Mandela was confirmed and um, I always interviewed Jim Bolger in those days on Wednesdays and I went up to his office and said um, well Jim it looks pretty good for um, Nelson Mandela speaking at our dinner and um, Bolger said uh Yes, Barry, I want to talk to you about that. Oh, yeah, okay. And he said, um, come down on my lift with me. I'm going back to the house, and prime ministers have private lifts uh, from the ninth floor of the beehive. So I went in the lift with him, and he sort of puffed up his chest and said, um, Barry, I think it would take somebody of my stature to uh, uh, introduce Mandela at the dinner, um, which was held in the Wellington Town Hall. And I said to him, well... Jim, you know, I work to a committee just like you do. I said, um, I'll let you know. So he sweated for about three days and I rang him back and uh, Jim enthusiastically took the call and I said, oh, Jim, about uh, the Nelson Mandela dinner. Yes, yes, yes. I said, uh, unfortunately, we've decided you won't be introducing Nelson Mandela. <laughs> and of course, the invective that flowed uh, doesn't bear repeating, but uh, then I said, but no, hang on, Jim. Jim, we have got a job for you, and it's a very important job. I said, um, but you have to share the podium with Helen Clark. It's passing a vote of thanks to the media. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so he accepted well. because he wanted a speaking slot at the dinner. The person that we gave the introduction to on behalf of the uh, politicians was Peter Tapsell, mm. who, of course, um, was the speaker carried over from the Labour Party to uh, National and it was appropriate, you know, Māori, um, you know, the Indigenous thing. And I was sitting with Mandela at the dinner, and, and I talked to him a lot about um, how he could forgive, mm. which, uh, you know, which I found extraordinary. And me being uh, a honky and, uh, and uh, one could be seen as one of his oppressors, he, um, he in fact uh, said, there is no point 
and holding grudges. You know, we have to live in this world and uh, try and find harmony. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, and I was sitting next to us, he was across the table from me, and next to me was his daughter, Zinzi. And uh, we had especially arranged um, the Wellington East Girls Choir to sing um, the South African national anthem in his dialect, his village dialect. And uh, when they got up and did it, um, Zinzi whispered to me, she said, my dad, what he will do is he'll go over and talk to each of those Mm. uh, girls. And sure enough, stood up. And Mandela walked over and embraced each of them and talked to them. And you can imagine, I'll bet those mm. kids, uh, well, they'll be young women now, or older women now, uh, I bet they uh, still talk about that today, the day that Mandela sort of, um, you know, came and embraced them. So uh, he was a remarkable man in many ways. You know, if you read The Long Walk to Freedom, as I did, um, and I just wished that I'd taken it uh, to his inauguration because um at his inauguration, which was extraordinary, uh, we um, got in to see him on the first day of his presidency, and there were five leaders that got in. Uh, just before us was Fidel Castro. He was he was in there, and uh, we were waiting in the outer room, and um, and uh, Castro came out, and I said to Bolger before going in, I said, "Listen, uh, I've got Nelson Mandela's inauguration speech." I would like, I'm going to give it to charity, but I'd like it uh, signed by him, so I'll have to interrupt at some stage. Uh, Bolger reluctantly acquiesced to it. So uh, when they came out, and I've got this uh, photograph of uh, Mandela signing the inauguration address, and he he dated it, he signed it with his title, He um, and um, so I brought it back to New Zealand, uh, donated it to uh, you know, Teen Cancer, canteen and at auction at that same golf tournament I was going to when I found out he was going to speak to us uh, it got four and a half thousand dollars and those days was a mm. lot of money and it was bought by Reuters so it'll be in their library somewhere that um, that and the best thing to me somebody said why on earth would you give away something like that it's priceless and I said the photograph is priceless to me it's yeah. not the document and uh, you know, Mandela, I think, was just extraordinary. His funeral was, uh, I went out um, to his funeral and very sad. Uh, Obama was there. John Key was mm. there then in, in power. And um, I sat in the stadium with a big black uh, African uh, contingent. And uh, every time uh, the then President Zuma uh, came up, to, uh, was mentioned, um, there was a boo went up in the mm. crowd every time uh, Obama was mentioned. There was great cheers, mm. and you know that Mandela would not have liked that. But I think rightly uh, the way the African National Congress has gone now is certainly what Nelson Mandela would not have envisaged. I know South Africa very well, having gone, uh, having married mm. uh, a woman who uh, uh, was born in South Africa. And um, the way South Africa is at the moment, we'd go back every year when her Omar was alive up until last year. Um, It's not the South Africa that Nelson Mandela would have wanted. Mm. So that's my most memorable story. (laughs) I know it's a long one. No. There are many elements to it, but, you know. I loved, I've loved sitting here listening 
to that. Thank uh, you. And I love sitting here listening to that because you've been woven into the fabric of New Zealand politics for so many years. And there are so many stories you could have picked. And yeah. no doubt there'll be people listening who would have expected that you might have pulled out some juicy story about a politician who did something really bad. Because no <laughs> doubt many of those. you've got loads yeah. of those. There's the coups you covered in Fiji. You could mm. have unpacked that. But you chose one of the world's legends. So rather than mm. coming here with a juicy political story that many people probably would have imagined you would have put on the table, you've put on the table someone that you clearly admire. Oh, uh, extraordinary. And one little element to the story that I forgot to say, and I'm sure all the journalists uh, that were there, um, they would remember it, that when Mandela, uh, he was uh, alighting from a plane in Auckland, uh, there was a crowd, a bank of the media, of course, and Mandela made a beeline straight for me. And I'd I'd like to think he remembered me, but mm. I'm sure he didn't. The bow tie, I think, was speaking volumes, and he came over and he always said, "Hello, how are you?" Yeah. Always, and um, so straight straight across. And I'm sure all the journo's looked at me. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was um, a great experience, and it's nice to be given the opportunity to talk about it because um, you know it's something that'll always be with me. And uh, the fact that I understand um, uh, South African politics and the people of South Africa much more now mm -hmm. than I did before um, before I met my wife um it's you know it's it's um you know the, the country is magnificent but the politics are horrible mm -hmm. so what is it about the man that has grabbed you so much when you've encountered so many personalities in your career what is it about nelson mandela that grabs you um well it is humanity you know that uh, a man who suffered so much i went to robin island uh, to the cell that he has held in for a long time. Uh, we were told um, when when he came to our dinner that he hates flashlights because uh, it was there were limestones that damaged his eyesight when he was uh, in prison. So we had to avoid that. We were also told at that dinner that uh, Nelson Mandela didn't drink. Mm. And uh, when I was sitting there, I knew the organiser very well. And... Um, Mandela was asked whether he'd like a drink, and um, he said, do you have any sweet wine? <laughs> and of course, <laughs> no, we don't drink sweet wine. So the organiser had to rush across the road uh, to a restaurant and buy some uh, Riesling yeah. and brought it back. And uh, Mandela, by all accounts, and this came through foreign affairs after the visit, he said that that dinner was the uh, the best thing uh, that uh, he'd been to in New Zealand. He mm. really enjoyed it because I think people were, journalists are like that, uh, good conversationists. Yeah. They um, they like telling a yarn, they like um, uh, listening to a yarn being told. And uh, Mandela obviously reveled in the company because everything was so sort of casual, mm. uh, not formal. And um, But to the person himself, I mean, when you look at, you know, what uh, apartheid was in South Africa and how dreadful it was, uh, institutionalised racism. And, you know, I think what Mandela, and he told me uh, when he was at the dinner that he respected greatly about New Zealand was 1981 and the Springbok tour. He was incarcerated on uh, Robben Island at the time. And 
I, in fact, at the time of the tour, I thought about Mandela because I covered it from one end of the country to the other. And I I thought at the time, I wonder whether Mandela, I wonder whether the protesters getting back to Mandela. Um, in a roundabout way, it was because um, subsequently I met uh, a warder, one of his warders from uh, Robben Island, and uh, he smuggled a television onto the island, and it was broadcast live, of course. Mandela didn't see the matches, but some of the prisoners saw the matches mm. on television and relayed them back to Mandela. And you can imagine, you know, if you had fought against apartheid and you saw a country so many miles away, but uh, a country that um, uh, has a religion almost of rugby, uh, just like South Africa, and for what happened during the Springbok tour, it really moved Mandela, and that's why when I invited him to speak to us, to a uh, press gallery, to a um, media organisation, that he would be much more sympathetic than any others, and that's uh, turned out to be the case. Mm. You've also mentioned your wonder at the journey he took the nation on afterwards and the the forgiveness and, and reconciliation. What I love about this and just hearing your tone, watching your body language and seeing your eyes, at the moments you've talked about things like the uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, things like the Springbok tour, there's a real sense that the justice is a big deal for you. Mm. It's not just a story. There's some yep. justice here that means so much more. Yeah. Oh, it is. And, uh, you know, I felt that uh, in journalism generally, uh, you know, when you see wrong being done, uh, it should be exposed uh, for what it is. And, um, you know, Mandela, you know, I mean, I, I went to, uh, uh, over the years, been to many locations in South Africa, and there are those ghastly settlements on the outskirts of every town uh, and every city in the country still there, and people living in absolute squalor that uh, we could never imagine. And that, that is what Mandela wanted to do, was to achieve uh, some sort of um, uh, livability for these people in terms of electricity and running water. Uh, they still haven't all got it. Uh, they're marginally better off than they were, but the system of government is still so corrupt that uh, it, he it, certainly they haven't been able to achieve uh, what he wanted. But people living in these um, squ- in the squalor, uh, it's unbelievable when you talk to them. They have aspirations just like you and I have. Mm. Uh, they want to make their lives better. They you know they were born like my little son that I'm looking after at the moment was born, and they had no preconceived ideas of what their life was going to be like. But uh, it was preordained for them, and um, that was it. Was that sort of injustice that, um, in my view, Mandela fought against because apartheid is pernicious, and uh, he wanted to expose that. He exposed it, but unfortunately, he was unable to eradicate it. And I think that one of the main reasons he was unable to do that uh, was because he was old when he came to the presidency. And so he never had long enough in it. I met him subsequent, on subsequent occasions, uh, after he became president when he travelled around the world, um, and he became frail. Um, you know, relatively, uh, you know, he had several years, good years, but became quite frail. And uh, the things that he wanted to achieve, he was unable to do so, unfortunately. Mm. 
The natural human inclination to things like apartheid and justice is vengeance. It's violence. Mm. It's to push back really hard against the oppressor to essentially take on the same power. Mm. But the journey of South Africa that he tried to implement was something wholly different, uh, completely different at the time. How did you feel about the whole forgiveness and reconciliation journey? Well, I find it extraordinary that uh, you had the vast majority of the population taking over the minority. Mm. That's the black population take o- taking over, not taking over the white, but um, um, democracy being implemented in that country. And for the first time, and to me it was extraordinary that there was no, no real bloodshed. There was you know, certainly um, sporadic outbreaks, uh, but nothing like there was under apartheid from the uh, white regime onto uh, the black Africans. Uh, and I found that uh, the lack of um, retribution exacted by the uh, the black population is was quite extraordinary. Although, having said that, it's not a place that I would uh, like to live. Uh, you know, like I said to you, having been back there several times, we've been burgled while we've been there. We've been uh, almost carjacked in Johannesburg. Um, so it's it's not a place. If you're white, it's not a place. I think that. Um, rests that comfortably, although there are areas uh, like in Cape Town um, and uh, that are very safe and the place that we stay in Mossel Bay, which is um, down near George on the coast, is uh, safe. But, you know, to have to live in a, a society like that is really hard. And it's, again, not something Mandela would have envisaged, but it's a magnificent country. It's beautiful. Mm. You know, I, I think South Africa is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Um, uh, but it's just a pity that uh, the politics can't catch up with the beauty of the country. Mm. Such a long career in politics. When it finally comes to an end, whenever that might be, <laughs> it's very hard to imagine politics uh, without Barry Soper. But when it finally comes to an end, what would you most like to be known for? Oh, goodness. Um, just being a decent person yeah. and being able to tell the story that um, without malice. Um, and a lot of people uh, would say, well, some people would say, that's not right. And I think one in particular would be the current Speaker of Parliament and the alleged rapist story that uh, that I covered. And I thought it was a well worthwhile story covering. And it was the hardest story that I had to cover mm-hmm. because... Uh, Trevor Mallard was a good friend of mine. I spoke at his wedding and um, he pleaded with me not to run the story and uh, said to me right at the beginning, he said, you'll re-victimise the victim and or re-traumatise was his words. Mm. And uh, I said to him, I'm not going to re-traumatise the victim, I'm going to traumatise you as it would look to me at the moment. Uh, and that was before I did the interview with the person that was accused of being a rapist. Uh, whose life was destroyed uh, by what happened. And um, so that's, I would think, in some quarters, having covered that story, uh, I would could be perceived as, um, there, there could be perceived as being some malice, but to me it was justice mm. and uh, power uh, over the powerless. And that's something that uh, in a democracy we should never tolerate. Mm. To close this, Barry, you've been in the press gallery for a long time. You've seen a lot of journalists come and go. Uh, and there's a lot of younger journalists coming through now. The future of journalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, how do you see it playing out? 
Well, I think, you know, and I don't want to denigrate um, my colleagues at all, and I don't do it uh, for that reason, but I think there's a lack of experience now. And when I came into the gallery in 1980, uh, I was by far the youngest uh, member of the gallery, um, and they were all, you know, in their um, probably late 30s, 40s, and right through. Um, And unfortunately... I think you know, the the nature of the media has changed a lot. Uh, social media is one aspect of that. There are uh, when somebody suggested to me uh, in the nineties that an internet journalist would ever be taken seriously, I would have laughed at them. Um, but that typical of my old school uh, view. But of course, um, internet journalism and uh, websites are just as important in the fabric of journalism than anything else these days. But uh, unfortunately, uh, there's the lure of the dollar. And um, a lot of uh, young journalists, when they get out of uh, either um, polytechnics or universities or broadcasting schools, the lure is into um, uh, public relations and spin doctoring. And I think it's a bit sad that uh, I think as a result, in a way, uh, journalism has suffered suffered a bit. And if you look at now the age of the uh, journalists in the gallery, uh, it's markedly lower than it was, and there's meaning there's not the same experience there as there was when I came into the place. But uh, having said that, they're conscientious, the people that are there, and that's not being patronising or condescending, but they they work their backsides off. Uh, and, um, you know, I think uh, even though they're criticised uphill and down dale, um, it's not an easy job, uh, and it's easy for the public to criticise and say the questioning's weak, it uh, should have been much more forceful. Um, it's Put yourself in the situation. For somebody that's relatively young and inexperienced, it's really hard to be tough uh, on somebody um, because they sort of don't have the background and I think they feel a bit underconfident. But uh, having said that, I think, you know, the media in general is in pretty good straits in a way, uh, but it's not the same media as it was when I started. And that's not the old bloke saying, you're not nearly as good as <laughs> I was in my day, because it's not true. Um, I, like them, had to struggle through my younger years as well. And, um, you know, when they're my age, I'm sure they'll sit here in the same seat and say the same sort of things. Um, you know, that's the nature of the business. Yeah, well, here's hoping that some of them stick around for decades in the press gallery yeah. because that, that networking, that experience, that ability to gain the confidence to go at it and to walk through some world events like you have, that comes yeah. with sticking around. So hopefully some of them stick around. Well, I'll tell you what, there's one man that springs to mind that's, uh, that's has stuck around or did stick around for so long, such an extraordinary man in the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Uh, when I came there, um, he, I remember it was, um, must have been 2007, I said to him, you've been here 40 years. And he said, oh, yeah, started in, I might be wrong in the years, but he said, yeah, I started in 19, must have been um, 1997. He said, I started in 1957. And I went, well, we should do something about that. So we had a black tie dinner in the Beehive. And um, the Prime Minister at the time was uh, Jim Bolger and made nice comments. And um, so there was this lovely dinner. And then 10 years later, I said to him, for God's sake, you've been here 50 years now. (laughs) And I said, we'll have to do something about that. So we had another dinner. And uh, lo and behold, in 2017, 
uh, 60 years wow. he'd been in the gallery. He's 93 now, and it's Ian Templeton, ah, yeah. the most remarkable man, and he's got a, a great background. And if it, there's ever an oracle that I want to go to and find out about something, still today, uh, him at 93 will supply the answer. And that's the sort of... Uh, depth and quality and um, he he has always been seen as um, a thoroughly nice human being even though like me he's given politicians jippo over the years mm. Barry to close I just want to say thank you I want to say thank you for your years of service uh, for serving the New Zealand public by holding to account those people who have power in our nation those people who spend our tax dollars who shift and change things and make a difference thank you for covering that for so many years for staying at it and for serving New Zealand. It's appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> Again, thank you, Barry. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this conversation. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series and thanks to you for listening. I really appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to News Talk ZB for allowing the use of one of their studios to record this episode and to Josh Couch and Steph So for putting it all together. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee is our shout. Sweet.